downtown. The podcast episode 18, Carrie? 17? What, which one is this? This is 18. 18. Good Lord, where's the time go? I'm Rich Kimball. He's Carrie Haskell. Joining you from our Zone Radio studios on Broadway in Bangor. Downtown emanates from here every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on WZON Radio, WKIT HD3. Streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com and you can download the WZON app as well. Our podcast brought to you by Nice Brewing Company, German-style beer from the woods of Maine, and by our friends at Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. On this edition of the podcast, a couple of very interesting conversations, one with actress Julia Duffy, who, of course, starred on New Heart for many years. She's got a new book out called Bad Auditions. And by music legend Tommy James, along with the Shondells, had a slew of hits in the 60s and early 70s, still working hard, touring, making music, and hosting his own show on Sirius XM Radio as well. Let's get things underway with our conversation with Julia Duffy. She appeared on the New Heart Show seven seasons and was nominated for an Emmy Award for Best Supporting Actress in every one of those seasons. Also a Golden Globe nomination as well. She's appeared on shows like Designing Women, Shameless, all kinds of stage work through the years as well. And she's the author of a wonderful new book called Bad Auditions. We had a chance to talk recently with actress and now author Julia Duffy. I work with high school theater students, and I, I think about all the times that the kids who are getting ready for a college audition have come to me and said, yeah, what should I do? What should I go with? And, and this book is going to be such a valuable resource uh, to them, but even to people who've been in the business a, a long time. And I love what you say early in the book, which is that when you audition, don't think of it as an audition, but you have that role for those moments you're in that room. Yes. Well, actually, I think that was... Um the casting person, uh, Elaine Aldaffer from Playwrights Horizons in New York, and she said, it's your job for, 20, for 10 minutes, you, it, you've got the job. And it's a great way to look at it. And she's a particularly fantastic casting person. Now, you've had some bad auditions, and we'll talk about one or two of those along the way. Yes. But I, I love some of the tips that you provide. And one is, and it's very useful, and you learned it yourself, it's important to rehearse a scene more than one way before your audition. Yes, because you never know what they're going to throw at you. And uh, especially if you particularly love the role and are inspired by it, you're probably going to have a very strong feeling about how it, how it should be done. And then to have something else thrown at you is very hard because you will be married to your opinion. But that's part of the job is to be flexible and to look at it different ways. For me, that was one of the hardest things always was if I went in with such a strong take on it, to then be told to do something different because I was attached to my feeling about it. But it's important to be able to do that. And important to be flexible in case, well, I don't know, the the scene partner you're working with decides to block the camera in the middle of your audition. Yes, well, I won't say who that actor <laughs> was. <laughs> there might be enough hints there that you can figure it out. Um, and he's a delightful actor, but he had no idea he did right in front of the camera and I was completely blocked so my audition was never really seen the waiting room uh, you refer to it as purgatory uh, you've made some friends there you talk about how you see a lot of familiar faces what's the best way to comport yourself in that waiting room well um, most people are very much in their own bubble 
in a waiting room. It's it's the way to be, unless you're reading for something that's really not terribly taxing. Um, most people are very professional, and they will go stand in a corner by themselves and maybe greet each other, but but not too much. Um, but uh, we, I do have waiting room relationships with some actresses <laughs> who are lovely and wonderful, and they are definitely stiff competition. And I think we all have a certain admiration for each other at this point that we're still standing. We're talking with Julia Duffy on downtown, and you talk about uh, the preconceived notions that casting directors have, and it, often it depends on a look or how they perceive you as an actor. But you also say in the book that it's important to let go of your own preconceived notions about your own type. Yes, because it can really limit you, and it's um, understandable that you will have those notions because of the way people react to you repeatedly and the way they cast you repeatedly, and you will begin to think that really you're not going to fit this or that role because they must be looking for a different type because, you know, I'll say to myself, well, I never get this kind of role. Um, But you just never know that every now and then they will do something creative in their casting. And so it's very important to let go of that if you can, to see yourself in a broader way if possible. Julia, how do you walk that fine line and keep the balance between being enthusiastic without being needy? Uh, Well, I think I got past being needy a long time ago, but (laughs) when you're young, you are needy. I mean, it's sort of hard to just pretend you're not needy because you are, and you have every right to be needy. You have every right to really want the role, really need the role. Uh, If you're a young person starting out, that's just fine. You don't have to hide that as much as you might think you do. Uh, you really, in the book, made me want to read The Party by Jane Arden. That sounds like a wonderful, not only a wonderful audition piece, but a wonderful play. It's a wonderful play. I'm still very upset, although I'm way past being able to play the ingenue. I've tried to get it done repeatedly. Um, I would love to see it done. But it's it has sort of a difficult subject matter and I don't know why uh, I wasn't able to get a production done, and I don't even know if you can find a copy of it anymore. I may own the only ones in existence in this country, but it is a very worthy play. But things like that come along, and you fall in love with them, and you never forget them, and you never get a chance to do them. But they're good for you as an actor. You've fallen in love with something, you've felt something about a character, and you will wind up transferring that to some other job, some other work. Julia, you write about the audition for Lou Grant, a part that you ultimately got, and that was in many ways a career-changing event for you because you formed uh, some great relationships there with people at MTM, but also because uh, they saw you as somebody that could do comedy as well as drama. Yes, uh, I think at first people thought of me as a dramatic actress because I think I looked more that type or something. I'm not really sure. Um, but people do tend to make that distinction very strongly. And uh, uh, really, truly, half the town thought I was a dramatic actress and the other half thought I was a comedic actress for a while. But every now and then you get an opportunity to show a particular casting person that you can do both, and that's very helpful then. But they they have to see it. <laughs> they can't imagine it. They have to see it. And first impressions do last a long time. 
Well, that MTM audition opened some doors, including the opportunity uh, to do New Heart. We had Bill Sanderson on the show a few months ago. And my gosh, I, I think of that group you had with Bill, uh, with his brothers on the show, uh, Tom Poston, Peter Scolari, Mary Fran, and of course, Bob Newhart. What an incredible ensemble to work with. Oh, it was amazing. And then to have Rickles hanging around, <laughs> uh, you don't get a job like that, but once in a lifetime. It was so much fun, and all we did was laugh all day long and got paid. I mean, it was an amazing job. It really was. I could have done it for the rest of my life. And it, it seems like Bob Newhart is, is that wonderful gem that you look for in acting, and that's somebody who is very generous and, and is happy to give co-stars their opportunity to get the laughs. Oh, yes. He he is very wise. He knew what what his place was. He knew that his reactions were what made things funny, and he had to have funny people to react to. He completely got it. As far as comedy goes, there's nothing that he would ever miss, and whatever was best for the comedy is what he did. And he also knew that if you weren't having fun, there was no point in trying to make comedy. And not everyone feels that way. (laughs) Not every set is that happy. But he was right, and I could not have been luckier. The character of Stephanie was, uh, I think it's safe to say, uh, self-centered, a bit entitled, and yet we still pulled for her to find happiness. How do you do that as an actor? How do you make us love that character that doesn't have the most lovable traits? Well, I think you have to think of someone like that as rather innocent about the way they're being. They don't have any malice, really. It's just, it was all Stephanie knew. She didn't know anything else. And... Uh, she sort of pitied people who uh, weren't as lucky as she was, and I thought it was hilarious that she thought that she was, because she'd been raised to believe that she was so incredibly beautiful and special, and so she just assumed that was true and uh, kind of felt sorry for people who weren't as wonderful as as she (laughs) is. And uh, I just don't think you can really hate someone who comes to it that innocently. When you were making Newhart, did did the members of the cast have the feeling that this was a show that would have tremendous legs, that people would still be watching happily and joyfully in reruns 25, 30 years later? Yes, because it was very important to us and all of the writers on our show that our jokes would be funny 10 years, 20 years later. Now we're past that even. (laughs) Um, But... No one was interested in current humor, and when there was a joke that had something current about it, it was, um, you know, pe- people fretted over it because they knew that it was it was maybe a hard joke to skip over now because it was such a good joke, but it wasn't really what you wanted. You really wanted it to be funny later. You also worked with another terrifically talented ensemble in a very memorable role as Stevie's mother in Shameless. What was that experience like? Oh, well, that's like guerrilla filmmaking, that <laughs> show. Uh, I didn't even know where the camera was most of the time. I, usually you're aware of where the camera is and you try to play to it. But it was all handheld, and I'm sure you can tell by watching the show, and very unstructured in that way. And it it was kind of wild. I mean, I I really loved that about it. And also, the kids on that show are so fantastic. My God, they hardly needed the adults. They were all just wonderful characters, such good actors. Uh, You've done a tremendous amount of stage work through the years as well. Do you find that 
you get a different reward from that because of that immediacy of the live audience. Well, it is, it's a very different kind of collaboration. And the rehearsal room, to me, is the most wonderful part of being an actor, to have four weeks to explore and to collaborate. And you have this feeling that is much harder to get on a set when people are only there for their scenes and then they leave. But that feeling that you're all trying to make something that's much greater than any one of you, and you're all trying for the same thing, and you're all listening to the same audience and listening if this is working. And that uh, collaborative feeling to me is the absolute best. Whenever I do a play and it's time to leave the rehearsal room and start tech and go to the stage, uh, I have so much trouble leaving that rehearsal room. It's, it's such a pull for me. I feel like I just want to rehearse it forever. <laughs> do we have to do it in front of an audience? <laughs> but then... But then that becomes its own thing. But that's such an odd adjustment from from that small, little, intimate collaboration to then doing it on the stage. It's so interesting. Was, we, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky comes on our show uh, quite a bit, and he talks about the rehearsal room as one of those sacred places because th- that's where you feel loved and protected and you feel safe. And it's, it is so hard to leave that when you've done so much powerful work as a group together. Yeah, it really is. It's amazing, that feeling every time. And if you ever aren't sad to leave the rehearsal room, then that hasn't maybe been a terrific process, <laughs> if you're not sad. Julia Duffy is with us here on Downtown. The book is called Bad Auditions. What prompted you to share uh, not just your stories of both good and bad auditions, but offer this book uh, as a guidebook for people, not just getting into the business, but uh, people who've been in it for a while and want to make that process a bit more fulfilling? Well, somehow I came up with the idea a few years ago. And uh, you don't want to waste your wisdom. If you've been doing anything for a long time, you're going to have some wisdom about it. And I think in any walk of life, any occupation, you sort of want to pass that on. And you don't want to just waste it. You want to have it useful to someone. And I did have that general kind of feeling. And then the title came to me, and I thought, well, that would be kind of a funny way to do it. I'll just humiliate myself and tell all the terrible things I did wrong, and then it'll help people avoid those traps, and it'll be a framework around which to try to instruct a little bit from what I've learned. Uh, But when I started to write it, I I thought, well, it's getting repetitive after I wrote two or three of them. It's just going to be the same thing, I thought to myself. So I dropped it. And then about a year and a half ago, it was pilot season, which, oh my God, (laughs) it's like Groundhog Day. Every day I'm reading for a different kind of bad mother at this age. (laughs) And I don't like it. I don't like that time of year when I'm doing the same thing all the time. Uh, But don't get me started on how people write mothers. But anyway, (laughs) I thought I had to do something to keep my sanity during this pilot season. And so I started to, since I was in the throes of the worst kind of auditioning, which is pilot season, uh, I would start to write more. And I did realize that truism that when you just sit down to write, you will find that you have something to write. You have to do that every day. And I discovered that. And I knew that I had some ability to write. And so I just made myself sit down and start writing. And so 
it's a very tiny book, but I never wanted it to be long because I wanted it to have the feeling of if I came into your student's class, your theater student's class, and gave them a lecture for an hour. I wanted it to have that feeling where I summed it up in a short period of time. You talk about the book being a way to sort of pass on some of the lessons that you've learned. Were there a couple of people when you were first starting out that that served that purpose for you, that sort of gave you some of the lessons that you're hoping to pass on to the next generation of actors? Well, there were. There were. um, Sometimes it was just the people I was competing with. And I... I could observe their demeanor, and I would always look and see who got the part when I didn't get the part, because I wondered what they were looking for that I didn't bring and that that person brought. And that was the most instructive thing of all, because if you're being honest with yourself, most of the time, you can see why that person got the part. If you can get over your bitterness or your pissiness (laughs) and take a look at and who got the part and watched their performance, you will understand how it came to be. And you will also understand what you have that you would have brought to the part that they didn't, even if they were a very obvious choice and and did a good job. You still will feel, yeah, but I didn't have that that I would have brought. And you'll get to know yourself, I think, a little bit better and what it is you bring to it. I really found that more instructive than almost anything else. I thought it was a really interesting comment uh, you make in the book that uh, when you get praise at an audition, it's important to remember that 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 praise is about the script. It's about the work and not so much about you. That's right. You have to think the same way about praise as about criticism. You're talking about the work. And even though you're really using yourself a lot in this line of work, you still have to sort of separate from it. You just have to. If you were an artist, you would step back and you would look at the picture and you would think about what you had to do. And you wouldn't take it personally if somebody told you that this color was wrong or this could be better. And you really have to approach it the same way. It's the best thing to do. While your book really deals with acting specifically as as someone that has never really done any theater except a couple of you know, quick college classes. Um, there's a lot in there that translates to other fields, uh, you know, being prepared, being confident, know your strengths, and, and that that all translates beyond just the field of acting. That's what the publisher said when she said she wanted to publish the book. She said everybody can keep learning and everybody can learn from mistakes. You have to humble yourself a little bit and get a little bit calculating about what you're going to do next time. I think it's true in any business where you have to keep making an impression of some sort or you, or the challenges keep coming. When you deal with rejection and everybody who auditions in any artistic endeavor or writer or whatever deals with rejection, do you have advice for people who are going to get a lot of rejection early on as how to best deal with that? Because if you can't deal with it, obviously you can't make it. Well, I wouldn't think of it as rejection, first of all. I wouldn't compare it to a writer having their manuscript rejected because there are so many factors. You might have given an audition that they will never forget, but they really did need the girl to be 
taller or thinner or something. I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into casting, especially in film and TV, because it's a visual medium. And you can't really forget that. That that matters. And sometimes the impression the character makes has to be made instantly. The person has to embody it completely, physically. So it isn't necessarily that you're being rejected. It's that you couldn't be cast because you just didn't have this or that that they found necessary for telling the story. Julia, I remember the episode of Lou Grant that you were on. Do you ever find yourself uh, at the television? I do, yeah. I was a huge, I still am a huge Lou Grant fan. Do you ever find yourself uh, with the television on and, and not Newhart, but uh, a, a one-time appearance that you made on a show comes up and you you either uh, look at it and say, oh, God, I, I don't want to watch this, or do you say, I forgot I did that. Well, wow, that was an interesting choice I made that time. No, most of the time I watch British TV, so that doesn't really happen to me very often. <laughs> My husband and I just love British TV, and so we've become like these expats uh, when in our viewing habits. Your husband, by the way, and I didn't know this until doing a little research, and very, very talented actor himself, uh, Jerry Lacey, who was in one of my favorite movies of all time, where he played, of course, uh, an unbelievable role in Play It Against Sam as Humphrey Bogart, but he's had a yes. tremendously successful career as well. Yes, he, he's had a, a, quite a varied career, and he writes also. He's written some plays, and uh, he's had a couple of small productions and would like to have more. Uh, so he's He's one of those people that does a lot of different things. I, I wrote one thing. Other than that, I'm pretty much a one-trick pony. <laughs> the book is called Bad Auditions. You can pre-order it right now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and uh, I believe I saw it's shipping at the end of September. Uh, apparently it ships September 30th. Fantastic. Well, it's a wonderful read. Uh, anybody should get it if you're interested in acting, but it goes, as we mentioned, beyond that. It's great advice for success in life. Julia, we're big fans of your work. It's been a delight for us to talk with you. We wish you much success, both with the book and with your acting career. Thanks so much for being with well, us. Thank you so much, and thanks for reading it. That's Julia Duffy here on Downtown, the podcast. And again, the book is called Bad Auditions, and it will be available soon. You can pre-order right now on Amazon. When we come back on the podcast, our conversation with a music legend, Tommy James, coming up after this word from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, just over five years ago, two friends got together to create balanced beers that pay respect to the rich German tradition of brewing, layered with the nuance and eccentricity of modern brewing. And Nice Brewing Company was born. Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S. Based in Limerick, Maine, right in the foothills of the White Mountains, Dustin and Tim combine a love of beer, science, and German heritage for truly unique brews. Whether it's the sun and shine, the nice weiss, their stouts, porters, IPAs, or any of the seasonal offerings, you'll love what they've got brewing at Nice. Ask for beers from Nice at your favorite restaurant or bar, and now 
look for nice in cans all over the state of Maine. Work hard, play hard, be nice. Back on Downtown, the podcast. Our next guest on the show has racked up a ton of Billboard hits, including this from 71. Making a living the old hard way Taking and giving my day by day I did snow and rain and a bright sunshine Tommy James scored his first hit with the novelty song Hanky Panky. Went on for a great run chart-topping songs like Crimson and Clover, Money Money, that one, Dragging the Line, and so many more. He continues to perform and tour and also hosts his own weekend show on Sirius XM Radio. And also is the author of a wonderful book on his career as well. Here's our conversation with music legend Tommy James. The book was so good, and I was very excited to read that it's been uh, put into development a motion picture. Uh, what, what's the latest on that? That's right. Well, the screenplay uh, has been written by uh, Matthew Stone. Um, uh, the Barbara Dufina is producing. Who she produced Goodfellas and Casino and uh, oh, uh, just a slew of Hugo a couple of years ago with Martin Scorsese and just a, a slew of great movies. And we're so honored to have her doing this. And so uh, uh, the director is being chosen as we speak, and as soon as that happens, uh, they do the casting, and you know the drill. It's a, it, ta- it seems to take forever, but uh, we're probably looking at about another two years. Now, uh, do you have any input? Who do you want to play you in the movie? Boy, that, you know, I get asked that a lot. I really don't know. I got to leave this up to the grown-ups. I guess. <laughs> um, I'm going to be consulting with the music and. Uh, and uh, the technical stuff, but I'm just so amazed that there that this is happening. Uh, when the book came out, you know, we we immediately got got uh, responses from uh, the, uh, people who wanted to do a Broadway musical and and the movie. So the the musical is going to be after the film, and uh, that's going to be how it works. So I'm very very excited about all this. Well, I, I love the book. I read it when it first came out, and then uh, once we uh, locked in the interview with you, I went back and, and read it again, and it's just such a fabulous read and an amazing story. And, and I guess as we look back, Tommy, maybe we all have to thank Mrs. Thurber, your fourth-grade teacher, for getting you up on that stage. Is that right? <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Well, you know, I've been so uh, so fortunate in my life. I mean, the good Lord's really smiled on me. I have... Uh, been doing this for so long. I've basically had the same job since I was 12. <laughs> and, and not, so, you know, I, it's the equivalent of being a 70-year-old paper boy. <laughs> so, and who would have thought with a record starting out like Hanky Panky that we'd still be doing this 52 years later? And I, is mind-blowing. I love the story of Hanky Panky, too, that uh, when you first heard it, nobody seemed to know whose record it was. It turned out to be uh, the flip side uh, of, of a song that, that didn't become a hit because of its timing That's in 1963, true. and it turned out it was two legendary songwriters performing it. That's right. Well, Hanky Panky was the flip side of a record called That Boy John uh, back in 19, late 63, uh, Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich wrote it and produced it and sang on it as uh, um, 
Oh, now I can't think of it. The raindrops. The raindrops. Very good. You did your homework. Thank God <laughs> one of us did. Um, well, at any rate, so the raindrops put this record out, and it was on the flip side of a record called That Boy John, and when that, which was about President Kennedy. And when um, uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, uh, the record got pulled off the market, and, of course, the B-side went with it. And I never heard it again until I heard somebody play it at, uh, at a, in a nightclub near my, my hometown. And I saw what Hanky Panky, the song, did to an audience. And I said, uh, you know, we got to record that. And I, at the time, had a little record deal uh, back in my hometown of Niles, Michigan. And we recorded this. This is back in 64. I was a junior in high school. And so we recorded it. And uh, nothing happened, basically, locally. But uh, about... Uh, Two years later, I had graduated from high school in 65 and took my band on the road. And right in the middle of my of one of my gigs, uh, the guy, the club owner gets uh, uh, shut down by the IRS for not paying his taxes. And we get sent home feeling like real losers. But as soon as I got home, I got the call that changed my life, uh, that... Uh, uh, a, a DJ in Pittsburgh had bootlegged 80,000 copies of Hanky Panky and sold them in 10 days when we were sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh. Uh, this is, you know, one of those only in America stories. And they asked me if I would come and do some television and, and, and perform. And so I couldn't put the original band back together and I went by myself. And sure enough, I got to Pittsburgh. Uh, the record Hanky Panky was number one. And uh, I picked up sort of the first bar band I could find to be the, the Shondells and went to, to New York a week later to sell the master to Roulette. And they turned it into the biggest record of the summer of 66. And that's literally how my career got started. Well, and uh, the story, of course, uh, gets even more interesting from there. When you get to New York, you talk to a lot of other record companies. Right. Many of them had interest and then... All of a sudden, it disappeared uh, thanks right. to and, and, uh, the guy who plays such a big part in your story. That's right. Morris Levy, who was the head of Roulette Records, um, basically called the other record labels and backed everybody down. He said, this is my act. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, we were going to be on Roulette, it looks like. I mean, that was the first, uh, uh, the first offer I couldn't refuse. So uh, we were going to be uh, on Roulette, and of course... Uh, we had a very scary time at Roulette, and the, the reason is that Roulette, in addition to being a functioning record label, was also a front for the Genovese crime family in New York. And so that, ma that made life really interesting for us, and we had to, basically, the story of Me, the Mob, and the Music in the book is the story of having to put up uh, with this very dark and sinister story going on behind us. Uh, that we couldn't talk or have anything about while we're doing Money Money, and I think we're alone now, and all the other hits. So that's how that's how uh, that that's going to be turned into a film now. Well, and, and it's very cinematic, just in in the telling of the story that you relate in the book, including uh, that that confrontation that you finally had yeah. with Morris Levy when you basically said, "Shoot me right now if you need to." <laughs> Well, yes, we were very, very fortunate to get out of roulette uh, in one piece. That really was true. And, uh, of course, uh, getting paid was another issue from roulette. <laughs> you know, crime doesn't pay. And um, so anyway, what, what it basically boiled down to was that uh, was uh, this very uh, 
you know, edgy story that I've been trying to get off my chest for a long time and finally got a chance to tell. We're talking with Tommy James here on Downtown. Well, you've met so many uh, incredible people along the way, and a couple of them I wanted to bring up. One is the fact that you played a pretty significant role in the career of a young photographer by the name of Linda Eastman. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, Linda was our uh, our photographer for about a year, and she took the uh, our second album, the It's Only Love album cover, and several uh, really iconic shots of the group. And she was a terrific photographer. And then all of a sudden she uh, runs into Paul McCartney and uh, takes off with Paul. And that's the last we saw <laughs> Linda Eastman. And, uh, but she was an incredible photographer. Uh, you also became very good friends with Vice President, Presidential Candidate Hubert Humphrey, who right. wrote the liner notes for one of your albums. He did. He wrote the liner notes for Crimson and Clover, the Crimson and Clover album. We went out on the, uh, we were asked to join him on the uh, 68 presidential campaign. And um, uh, I'll never forget, we were, you know, the whole group was together watching the convention, the Democratic convention in Chicago, where all the kids got beat up. And uh, we looked at each other and said, oh, my God, is every rally going to be like this? <laughs> you know, what have we got ourselves into? And so we met him out in, uh, I believe it was Wheeling, West Virginia, the following week after the convention. And uh, he couldn't have been nicer. And we ended up doing the entire campaign with him. And uh, before it was over, I was asked to be president's advisor on youth affairs if it if he won. So my life could have been very different if, <laughs> if, uh, if, it, if he'd have zigged instead of zagged. You even offered him a little uh, uh, chemical assistance uh, in, in keeping up his hectic it's pace. It's amazing I wasn't arrested. Uh, he asked if I had anything to, to stay up with, and I said, well, I've got this. And I <laughs> laid a couple of whatever it was I was taking at the time. And uh, it's very embarrassing because, uh, um, you know, (laughs) he says to me the next day, Tommy, those damn things kept me up all night. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That's a true story. (laughs) So anyway, uh, it's amazing I stayed out of jail on that one. (laughs) Well, uh, your your songs remain so popular to this day. We were talking uh, before you you came on the air about, uh, you know, I think it was in one year in the, the 80s, where there were three different covers of Tommy James songs all riding the charts at the same time. With right. uh, uh, You had Billy Idol's Moni Moni, you had Tiffany doing I Think We're Alone Now, right. and then you had Joan Jett's cover. That's true. Uh, well, you know, uh, 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 of course, Joan did Crimson and Clover, and uh, which is probably the way we would have done it if we'd have done it in the 80s instead of the 60s. But, uh, you know, all of a sudden the covers began in, in the 80s, and we've had over 300 cover versions of our songs done by artists all over the world, uh, from, oh, R.E.M. to the Boston Pops, you know what I mean? And I, I have been really so flattered. I, I'm very flattered and honored when another artist uh, does one of our songs because it's always interesting to hear somebody else's interpretation of your music and so uh, I'm I'm very 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 thrilled uh, when an artist does one of our tunes. Well, you're still touring, still making music and absolutely love your show on Sirius XM Radio 60s on 6 getting together with Tommy James uh, which is so fabulous 5 to 8 p.m. on Sundays. Well, thank you. Thank you for the plug. 
Yeah, absolutely. I like. I can't get enough of it. Had that, very I, generous of you. Thank you. I love the show. We had um, we had Peter Noon on uh, back sure. a month He's or a so good ago. Of mine. Yeah. yeah, a fellow serious XM contributor. Yes, he, he has the same show five to eight on Saturday. And as if that wasn't enough, you're also now a member of the New Jersey Hall of Fame and wow, got to be true. inducted by Little Steven. That's pretty cool. That's true. And uh, so I've listen. I've nobody is uh, feels more blessed than I do to be doing this for over fifty years. I I really do mean that, and I thank the good Lord and the fans for uh, the kind of longevity we've had. Can't wait for the movie. Can't wait for the Broadway show. And uh, so glad that you're still out there making music and sounding as great as ever. Tommy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Rich. That's Tommy James here on Downtown, the podcast. Check out his book as well. It's a terrific read, Me, the Mob, and the Music. Thanks to Tommy, and thanks to Julia Duffy, and thanks to you for joining us for this week's edition. We'll see you next time here on Downtown, the podcast. Downtown, the podcast.